Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-27 Lucificus Julius Bassianus likely arranged the meeting with great care. High Roman officials were something of a novelty in Emesa, and Bassianus may have also heard that this one demanded a strict formality, likely a sensitivity from his provincial origins. Regardless, Bassianus's royal lineage and role as high priest made him Emesa's leading citizen, giving him a practiced hand at making Romans feel at home. Lucius Septimius Severus, commander of the Fourth Scythian Legion, was an interesting figure. Small in stature but powerfully built, with dark skin and a restless energy, Severus had been assigned to his current post by Marcus Aurelius, only a short time before his death. Severus was one of many provincials whose family gained status during the reign of Antoninus Pius. Many had gone on to prove their worth in the northern wars, and been elevated to critical posts made vacant by the Antonine Plague. While Severus's father, Gedded, held no official position, his family had produced consuls and a provincial governor, and Severus's brother, Publius Septimius Geta, was currently serving as a military tribune. Before arriving in Syria, Severus had been a senator in Rome, a quaestor in Sicily, a legate in Africa, a tribune of the plebs, and, most recently, a praetor in Hispania. From everything Bassianus had heard, Severus's tenure in Syria, serving under the current governor Publius Helvius Pertinax, had been largely uneventful. Bassianus may have also learned that, in addition to political ambitions, Severus had two main fixations. The first was an interest in ancient history, particularly in the Phoenician culture of the Syrian coast. 
His home city of Lepsis Magna had been founded by Phoenicians from Carthage, itself a former colony of Tyre. Through intermarriage with the local population, Lepsis Magna's current citizens were best described as Libophonician. But echoes of their Syrian origins abounded in local religions, political structures, and family names. In fact, the Punic language still spoken in Lepsis was related to the Aramaic spoken in Syria. Severus's second obsession, nearly eclipsing the first, was astrology. Like many powerful Romans, Severus was a hunter and collector of omens predicting his own future greatness. In this spirit, he'd recently visited the oracle of Zeus Belos in nearby Apamea, though whatever he'd learned there remained a mystery. While he was in the area, it made sense for Severus to also visit Emesa, commonly known as the Jerusalem of the Sun God. Along with ordinary citizens, Emesa's streets were likely brimming with religious pilgrims and merchant caravans, being resupplied on their journey from Palmyra to the coast. While the city boasted temples to several Near Eastern gods, it's little surprise that the first Roman coins minted there, during the reign of Antoninus Pius, featured an eagle atop the black stone of Elagabal. At some point during his visit, Bassianus would have introduced Severus to his family. In addition to his younger brother Iamblichus and Iamblichus's 22-year-old son, Gaius Julius Sulpicius, this also included Bassianus's two daughters. The eldest, Julia Mesa, was 17 years old. Even at this young age, she was already married to a 27-year-old Emesene noble and Roman military tribune named Gaius Julius Avitus Alexianus. In fact, the couple already had two infant daughters of their own, named Julia Avita Mamaya and Julia Soamius Bassiana. The Soamius was a tribute to either their famous royal ancestor or his descendant, the current Armenian king. And yes, I have an updated family tree posted on the Ancient World website. The younger daughter of Julius Bassianus was the 12-year-old Julia Domna. Though her name sounded like a shortened form of the Roman Domina or Mistress, it actually came from the Arabic Dumaina, for the color black. Now, to be clear, at the time of his visit, in 182 AD, Severus was 37 and already married to a noblewoman from Lepsis Magna named Pacia Marciana. And no matter how striking a young woman she'd later become, Julia Domna was still just a 12-year-old girl. That being the case, there's no hint that the couple's first meeting was anything but cordial. But something about Julia, her father, and Emesa clearly made a lasting impression. The most likely explanation was the young girl's horoscope. Knowing Severus's interests, Bassianus probably mentioned that his daughter was destined to be the wife of a future king. It's unclear whether Severus made an equally strong impression or whether Julius Bassianus considered him another transient Roman functionary. 
probably the latter, considering a few months later, Severus was stripped of his command by the new young emperor, Commodus. Sometimes the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and then other times you get Commodus. Ordered to the front at the age of 14, in response to the revolt of Avidius Cassius, Commodus was denied the long years of formal education that had largely defined his father. Historian Anthony Burley suggests that Marcus Aurelius, faced with nothing but continuous warfare, may have decided that he'd been overeducated and in the wrong fields for his role. To Marcus, the days of the philosopher emperor were over. Commodus would instead become the warrior emperor Rome needed to defend its frontiers. Except, well, there's skill and then there's motivation. When Marcus died in 180 AD, Commodus was 19 years old. And despite the arguments of his father's old advisors that he should stay the course and remain on the Danube fighting Germans, Commodus favored an alternate strategy. Let's make peace with everyone so I can get back to Rome and take advantage of this whole unlimited power thing. Victory was declared, a few treaties were signed, and Commodus returned home to a hero's welcome. Before long, the new emperor was exhibiting the worst traits of the Julio-Claudians, laziness, debauchery, and handing state power to ambitious favorites. It's little surprise that the first attempted coup happened only two years into his reign. It was slightly more surprising that the lead conspirator was Commodus's own sister, Lucilla. The initial fallout included the execution, imprisonment, or banishment of everyone involved. But soon Commodus also began targeting men of exceptional wealth, advanced education, or general high quality, on the basis that they had either the means or the inclination to challenge the new regime. It was this broader purge that led to the removal of the Syrian governor Pertinax and his subordinate, the legate Septimius Severus. Though purges per se were relatively novel, both Antoninus Pius and Marcus Aurelius had reshuffled Syrian staff to suit their needs. Either way, the result was the same. And when he arrived, Bassianus probably sent a nice fruit basket to the new Syrian governor, Gaius Domitius Dexter. Bassianus may have been more interested in developments in nearby Edessa. Like Emesa, Antioch, and other eastern cities, the Osrowini capital hosted a variety of cults. The most prominent were those of Nabu, Bel, and the moon god Sin all imported to the region by the Babylonian king Nabonidus in the mid-6th century BC. There was also the nearby cult of the Syrian fertility goddess Atargatis, whose holy men climbed pillars to seek quiet contemplation, early forerunners of St. Simeon and the Stylites. Which brings us indirectly to the matter at hand. Ever since his elevation in 177, the latest Osrowini king, Abgar IX, had grown increasingly chummy with the Christians. By the late 2nd century, Christianity had come a long way from the days of James the Just. 
The core beliefs in Jesus' divinity and resurrection hadn't changed, but spending its adolescence in the religious melting pot of Syria had exposed Christianity to a variety of influences. All across the Near East, Christianity encountered and was affected by local religious traditions. This merging of different, even contradictory beliefs was called syncretism. One crystallizing set of Christian beliefs in God's inherent goodness, a hopeful afterlife, an eternal conflict between good and evil, and a Redeemer born to a virgin who'd raise the dead for final judgment, was largely adopted from Zoroastrianism, an Iranian export from the Late Bronze Age. In fact, the closest parallel with the budding Christian church structure was the Zoroastrian priesthood known as the Magi. So when King Abgar of Edessa began supporting Christian missionaries targeting the Parthian Empire, the religion was, in one sense, returning home. Familiarity with Christian beliefs and the long Persian tradition of religious tolerance meant that Christianity initially had more success spreading eastward rather than westward. By contrast, Roman officials considered the Syrian cult to be superstitio, not just alien but morally corrosive. One of the main issues was Christian renunciation of both family and country, pretty much the two main pillars of Roman society. But the typical charge leveled against Christians was, ironically, that they were atheists, since they didn't believe in or worship the official gods of Rome. In the West, this perception was combated, to some extent, by a new type of figure called a Christian apologist. Not apology as in, I'm sorry, but apology as in, let me explain— And those of you in relationships know just how well that approach usually works. One of the earliest Christian apologists was Justin Martyr, and you can probably read ahead a bit based on his name. Knowing his Greco-Roman audience, Justin constructed ethical and philosophical arguments defending Christian morality. In doing so, he asserted that Christian beliefs predated Jesus, allowing Justin to claim Socrates and Plato as unknowing Christians, which I have to admit is pretty creative. Unfortunately, not creative enough, and Justin was beheaded in Rome in the mid-160s. Another famous apologist was Athenagoras of Athens, When Marcus Aurelius and his young son Commodus were visiting Athens in 176, Athenagoras wrote a defense of Christianity tailor-made to the philosopher-emperor. It cited pagan poets and philosophers to refute the charges of immorality and atheism, and stressed Christian abhorrence of violence and murder. But it's doubtful his tract ever really got a hearing since Marcus and Commodus were busy being initiated into the Eleusinian mysteries. Along with syncretism and apologism, second-century Christianity was characterized by two other factors. The first was an attempt to establish a right way of worship, or orthodoxy, based largely on the teachings of the apostles. But of course, you can't have right thinking without invoking its evil twin and the 2nd century also saw the first Christian heresies. 
One of the earliest was preached by Marcion of Sinope, son of the Christian bishop of Pontus. Believing the Yahweh of the Old Testament was incompatible with the teachings of Jesus, Marcion proposed there were actually two gods. A universal god of compassion, who'd fathered Jesus, and the jealous tribal god of the Jews, who'd created the earth. Since Marcion was preaching this right after the Bar Kokhba revolt, it could be seen as an effort to distance Christianity from Judaism. But either way, in 144, he was ordered to Rome and excommunicated. Another more famous heresy was that of the Gnostics. Like Marcionism, Gnosticism proposed two gods, a remote supreme god and a world creator or demiurge. But Gnosticism went farther in claiming that the material world was the accidental creation of this evil lesser god, and could only be escaped through the pursuit of spiritual knowledge or gnosis. On the more exotic side was Montanism. Montanus was a former priest of Apollo in the Anatolian region of Mysia. After converting to Christianity, he became an ecstatic prophet, claiming to channel the Holy Ghost and proclaim some local Phrygian towns to be the new Jerusalem. His female companions, Prisca and Maximilla, claimed similar powers and encouraged their followers to fast, pray, and live an ascetic life so that they, in turn, could receive their own revelations. After a failed attempt to exorcise evil spirits from the trio, the Proto-Orthodox Church settled for excommunication. Basically, the passionate public displays of the Montanists were embarrassing the other Christians, who were trying to appear respectable to Roman eyes. Despite this fact, several prominent early Christians, including the Latin father Tertullian, defended the group and believed their prophecies were genuine. It's an interesting period in the growth of Christianity, because you can watch the early Christians taking Jewish tradition, their own beliefs, and Eastern beliefs that seemed harmonious with Christianity, then trying to wrestle all these aspects into one consistent body of faith. It's no surprise that some attempts went far outside the bounds of proto-Orthodoxy. On the other hand, when it came right down to it, the second century church had minimal tools for dealing with heresies. The most it could do was excommunicate heretics and publicly condemn their beliefs. That being the case, it's little surprise that most early heresies spread far and wide, and many endured for centuries. For Julius Bassianus, the growth of Christianity, orthodox or heretical, was worth keeping an eye on. On the one hand, it was clearly syncretic, even with his own beloved sun god, since most early Christian churches were built facing the rising sun. On the other hand, Christianity was associated with the lower classes, and often condemned other religions. Even more troubling, once household slaves embraced it, they began converting their housebound mistresses, who then raised their own children as Christians. Even a hereditary priesthood like the Emmacene clan was hardly immune from the practice. In 185, Bassianus celebrated his 50th year, and his 25th as high priest. 
But it was the following year that brought unexpected family news. The first piece was the death of King Sohamus of Armenia. Bassianus's uncle had held the throne on and off for over 40 years, and for a moment his son Julius Alexander might have even dreamed of succeeding him. But then came the wake-up call. After over 40 years on his own throne, King Vologasis IV of Parthia was no less ambitious, and immediately sent an army to seize Armenia. Julius Alexander was put to flight, and Vologasis installed his own son, Vologasis V, as Armenian king. Bracing for the usual Roman response, the Parthians were instead met with nothing. As it happened, Commodus, or rather his latest favorite, the Phrygian freedman Cleander, were preoccupied with legionary revolts erupting in the west, and it soon became clear that For the first time in over a century, absolutely no one was coming. Which was great for Parthia, and generally fine for the region, where Parthian rule was considered milder than Roman. But the collateral damage soon landed in Emesa, in the form of King Sohamus' son, Julius Alexander. The former prince had earned a reputation as a bestiarius, or animal fighter, and had hunted large and dangerous game across the wilds of Armenia. After being preemptively deposed, he decided to seek refuge with his cousin Julius Bassianus and his extended family in Emesa. Later that year came the real bombshell. Bassianus received a letter from far-off Lugdunensian Gaul, from a man claiming to be its current governor. To Bassianus's surprise, that man was Septimius Severus, restored to favor, recently promoted, and also recently widowed. In the letter, Severus announced his wish to marry Bassianus's daughter, the now 17-year-old Julia Domna. It was, all in all, an interesting proposal. For Severus's part, As a Roman on the make, there were clear dangers in associating himself with Eastern nobility. Centuries after its conquest by Pompey the Great, the East still conjured images of extravagance and despotism. And, of course, there was the standard trope of the manipulative Eastern queen, a serious concern for any career-minded Roman. But any doubts must have been outweighed by two significant factors— The first was Julia's enormous dowry. Aside from being the daughter of the Emesene high priest, Julia Domna was now wealthy in her own right. For reasons not entirely clear, she'd recently inherited the estate of her great-uncle, Julius Agrippa, a senior centurion and brother of the former Armenian king, Gaius Julius Sohamus. Pooled together, their combined fortunes should help overcome any political impediments. The second factor, of course, was her legendary horoscope, the kind of supernatural insurance that even money couldn't buy. For Julius Bassianus, it was a matter of maximizing his daughter's potential. As already mentioned, Julia was young, noble, and wealthy, and her horoscope was widely known. But even so, local opportunities were limited. 
There were the obvious roster of Syrian nobles, rich merchants, and the few remaining petty dynasts. But locally, at least, no high-ranking Roman would even glance in her direction. After the recent revolt of Avidius Cassius, courting an eastern noblewoman destined to marry a king was practically career suicide. Or, with Commodus, maybe even actual suicide. All things considered, a Roman governor from a noble provincial family was a pretty good catch. And what did Julia Domna think? Well, we really don't know. And to be honest, she may not have even been asked. Just like her ancestors Drusilla of Mauritania and Cleopatra Selene, the decision wasn't really hers to make. Regardless, as historian Barbara Levick sums up, she and Severus shared Semitic ancestry, Roman citizenship, high status, and ambition. It had proved to be a formidable match. Sometime in 187, Julia Domna left Emissa to take ship for Lugdunum in Gaul. When she next returned home, some seven years later, it would be as the first Syrian empress of Rome. <laughs> 